everybody. I am Peter Burson, and welcome to still another edition of Money Talks and Bullshit Walks, or as those in the know call it, MTBW. Uh, this is the history of Philadelphia from 1980 to present. Uh, Joe Willard, who normally joins us, uh, had claimed that he had today off and that he was working. Um, uh, Joe is actually with us. I guess he quit work, but I think that Joe was probably not using his time to work. Uh, he was probably using his one vacation day uh, that was given to him uh, in his contract written by our attorney, Bombastic, Bombastic Bushkin. Uh, and I really believe uh, and suspect Joe was preparing for the celebration of Festivus uh, and raising the Festivus poll and looking at his notes for the annual airing of the grievances. But we do have to mention that our attorney, uh, Bombastic Bushton, has asked us again to emphasize that for all present future podcasts, we are not historians. We are not journalists, although we've had journalists and former journalists join us. All our guests make no greater claim than Joe and I. We deal in urban legends, and if the truth gets out, so be it. You can just view us as a group of people sitting in a bar like we used to could before the virus. We're getting some laughs, talking trash about the city that loves you back, the land of the giants, as former Inquirer reporter Steve Lopez put it. And today we have a special guest, Judge Mark Bernstein. Um, he's here to talk about how to become a judge in Philadelphia. That should interest our podsters. Um, and I've known Judge Bernstein for a long time, uh, actually since before he became Judge Bernstein. Um, but at any rate, uh, Judge Bernstein has quite a story of how he became a, a judge. Uh, and as many of our stories start, like others, it involves a political corruption story. That should get your attention out there, podsters. So, Judge Bernstein, how did you become a judge? That's an interesting question. It really starts with what's come to be known as the roofers scandal. Uh, the roofers back, I became a judge in 1987. I first ran for judge briefly in 1985, but withdrew and then uh, ran in 1987 when I was appointed and then elected. But the success of my election really starts with the roofers scandal. Uh, Stephen Traits was the head of the roofers union and the roofers union back in the 80s was the uh, strike arm of militant labor. So that when there was a non-union construction site, it would be the roofers that went on and busted up the place. I guess it was, Christmas of 85, actually. And the uh, feds had a wiretap on the roofer's uh, phone. Were, were actually microphones in the, in the walls of the roof. Is roofers. that when they were preparing the Christmas cards? That was when they were preparing Christmas presents. But that wasn't what they were looking for. The feds 
I think had had gotten probable cause to tap the into the roofers union hall because of an investigation concerning the pension fund. But I don't think anything ever came of that. But lo and behold, they heard traits and whoever else was in the room counting out money for judges and putting it into envelopes. And in Philadelphia, we do things differently. And uh, it, it, to me, it was very interesting because every judge that was named got uh, $300 in cash and one judge only got 200. And these cash envelopes were given out to the judges. I think some were delivered to their chambers, but many of them were given to uh, the judges personally by someone at the Democratic City Committee dinner. That would have been the judges who were up for retention, and I don't know how many of them there were. Uh, one judge completely skated through the whole thing because he was on vacation and never received the $300 uh, cash envelope. Did he later protest? <laughs> uh, <laughs> protest, uh, that, oh, okay, so as, as this went on, the feds now knew these judges had uh, received cash in envelopes and uh, took various steps, including, uh, as it progressed, getting, getting warrants to actually bug certain judges' chambers and get, getting a body warrant uh, uh, or convincing one of the judges that rather than go to jail, she should wear a, uh, a bug on her, a recording device. As a result of this investigation, they couldn't ever connect the $300 gifts to any specific cases, except they thought they could with one judge. Uh, this was Esther Sylvester. And she was actually indicted in federal court and went to trial. And her defense was that she had given the envelope back to her judicial aide with instructions to return it as soon as she saw what was in it. And uh, either luckily or unluckily, her judicial aide had died between the time of this event and the time of her trial. So the only evidence from either side as to what she did with the $300 was her testimony. And she was found not guilty. That was the only judge who was indicted for actually receiving the $300. They must, the feds must have thought they could connect that one to a specific case. And given Pennsylvania, Judge Sylvester uh, was found not guilty. And to my recollection, it was only a couple of weeks later she was named administrative judge of family court. So wait a minute, that, that's a supervisory position. Uh, so after all this federal indictment and a federal tri jury trial, I would presume, uh, she gets back on the bench and she gets a, what I would call a promotion. I don't know how you would view it. 
It's much more than a promotion. There are only three administrative judges, and they basically run all the court, all their their area of the court. So family court administrative judge would control the family budget, all the hiring, all the promoting, all the assignments of judges, and basically would run that entire branch of the courts. So they were about, going back to the main story, while they were bugging uh, chambers and Mary Rose Cunningham was carrying a wire and talking to people, they came upon, I don't remember whether it was two or even three judges who were actually taking bribes. This had nothing to do with the $300 they got. This was entirely separate. It just turned out that they had been taking bribes in their chambers to actually fix cases. And I, I guess it was just two, but two of them went to jail. So that was a spinoff of what's been known as the roofer scandal. Was one of those the Barry Denker? Uh, yes, those were the Barry Denker. Barry Denker was a lawyer who, uh, according to the tape, actually turned over or offered money in chambers uh, during a break in trials or parole hearings. And I learned, I think he went into the witness protection program, of course, stopped practicing law, but I'm not sure that he was ever charged, but these judges actually spent time in jail. Another, was it Judge Kane? Judge Kane was one, Judge Harris was another, municipal court. Kenny Harris, oh, he might have been CP at that time. And I'm not sure if there was a third. I sort of think there was a third, but I don't remember. So another, go ahead. Another okay. 13 judges were administratively suspended by the Supreme Court and eventually thrown off the bench. Most of them were thrown off the bench for not reporting. Well, all 13 were thrown off the bench, bench, not for taking the money, but for not reporting it on their annual disclosure form. So they were all thrown off the bench and most of them were thrown off with the, uh, not admonition, but uh, instruction or direction that they could not seek judicial office again. Interestingly, I. Raymond Kramer, who was a judge who was not one of those involved in the roofer scandal, was the head of the state trial judges conference ethics committee. So he was the one that judges would go to for opinions on what was right and wrong. And he always contended that these judges were treated unfairly because there was no rule against taking cash in an unmarked envelope. Uh, and this is Philadelphia. Uh, well, this is Pennsylvania, actually. He was head of the whole state uh, ethics. Well, so conference. that was groundbreaking stuff that he was giving us. This was groundbreaking. He thought that they, they had gotten the rules changed in the middle of the game because there was no rule against it. And I always said I didn't think that a judge needed 
a rule to tell them not to take cash in an unmarked envelope. Um, so 13 got thrown off. One was allowed to run for re-election again, and he did, and he won, and said, I want to go to family court where nobody will look at what I do. And up until his death, he presumably had a, a fine record as a judge. Another one, Bernie Snyder, while all this was going on, because it took about two or three years from the time the scandal broke to the time that the Supreme Court threw them off the bench. One of them, Bernie Snyder, uh, had to run for retention. And he lost his retention election. Which is so, hard to do. Uh, if I can tell that story, I'll get to it. Um, so the Supreme Court didn't have to throw him off because he was off. But then he decided in his wisdom that he wanted to run again. And when he filed his papers some two years later, or maybe even four, I don't know, uh, then the Supreme Court decided that they would issue a, an opinion concerning his receipt of $300 and declared that he could not run for judicial office. Now, Bernie, Snyder, Bernie Snyder's retention election is fascinating because he's the only judge to ever lose retention in Philadelphia County. That's across, what I was gonna ask you. Across the state every year, one or two judges in the smaller counties, maybe three, lose retention. But there they know who the judges are and what they do. In Philadelphia County, where we have 93, 94 judges, really a lot of it is anonymous. But Bernie Snyder worked very hard to lose his retention election. I'm glad to hear that. He really did. Um, he sat non-jury on the on a libel lawsuit against Philadelphia Magazine, I believe it was, and rendered a verdict as the largest verdict in Pennsylvania history. Uh, against a media outlet. So, so this is a waiver trial, and probably our podsters don't know what a waiver trial is between that and a jury trial. So this was a non-jury trial where the judge, Judge Snyder, got to decide both the facts and the law and render a verdict. So his verdict was the largest verdict ever against a media outlet in Pennsylvania. And on post-verdict motions, which always gets filed, um, the allegation was, based on information from his law clerk, that he would have lunch with plaintiff's lawyer, the, the lawyer who was suing Philadelphia Magazine, uh, during the trial, I think that's right, and that he allowed plaintiff's lawyer to write his opinion as to why he was rendering this huge verdict. So this, of course, is all happening in the year of his retention election. And as one can imagine, the Inquirer is writing editorials about how outrageous this whole thing is. And then the defense counsel 
Philadelphia Magazine moved for his recusal, which meant you're involved, let another judge handle the post-verdict motions. And he denied recusal. And then when it came to the hearing, he refused to allow the defense to call his law clerk as a witness. So but, for Philadelphia, that even for Philadelphia, that's pretty brazen. It gets worse. <laughs> gets much worse. This is going on day after day. You can imagine what the Inquirer and Daily News are doing with this day after day. And then he, so he doesn't allow the defense to call his law clerk, but he does allow the plaintiff to call himself. So he takes the witness stand and testifies for plaintiff while at the same time ruling on objections to his own testimony. That's, That's not how you become a judge, is it? What? That's not no, this, how you become a judge. No, but this is the only way you ever lose <laughs> retention uh, in Philadelphia. As, so as I said, he worked very, very hard. So we had all these 13 judges um, thrown off the bench because of the roofer scandal. And as you can imagine, this caused a great turmoil in Philadelphia, not just in the legal community, but throughout uh, the city, really, and throughout the political world. And Governor Casey created what he called a merit selection panel to give him judges across the state, not just Philadelphia, to be appointed. And uh, this was uh, really a, a high quality group of people who were intending to make recommendations based on merit. So I was a real lawyer and had tried real cases and also was very much involved in politics, although completely from the left-wing liberal perspective. But I'd been doing that from 1970 to 1987. And over time, we had achieved some results. Congressman Gray, various council people. Marion Tasco was a city commissioner. Um, I had gotten to know Congressman Borsky, Governor Good, Governor uh, Mayor Good, Mayor Good, Wilson Good was mayor, and my law partner David Feynman was his personal attorney. So I was pretty well connected, but not within the party, but pretty well connected in the political community. So it was relatively easy for me to get through the merit selection panel and be on their list of recommended. But like everything else in Philadelphia, our Pennsylvania politics, that was the front door. And you had to be on the front door list to get appointed for sure. But there was also a back door list. And the back door list was the list that the party gave, gave Governor Casey of the people they recommended. Now, if this was normal times, I would never have been on the uh, backdoor list. But because of 
the uh, the scandal and because Governor Casey had said he would not appoint anyone who wasn't recommended by his merit selection panel, it was relatively easy for me to be on the backdoor list because to keep me off would have been an insult to Congressman Gray, Congressman Borsky, couple of council people, a bunch of state legislators who I had supported. So I got appointed. Then came the primary election. It was me and Eddie Summers were the two who everybody supported. And then there were the three, Judge now Judge Heron, Judge Legrome Davis, and Judge Darnell Jones, who were the whole issue of a major, major uh, political fight as the party put up its candidates in opposition, including Judge Nigro, soon later to become Justice Nigro, and Jimmy Melanson, who lost and got, he was a Republican, but running as a Democrat because you could cross file and his story is wonderful. He got a, a Mr. Booby Prize here. Jimmy Melanson lost and got appointed to the Superior Court. And then he lost statewide for the Superior Court and got appointed as a magistrate in federal district court. So he's somebody who uh, climbed that ladder by losing. Uh, so uh, you just mentioned uh, the the retention, but what does cross filing mean? I mean, I know, and you know, but I, some of our podsters do not know that you can run on as a Republican and a Democrat at the same time. Okay, if you are if you are running for any real political office, you can't be on more than one party ticket. But if you're running for judge and you get enough signatures, you can be on Republican and Democratic Party tickets. So when you and, say signatures, you mean petitions to run? Yeah, yeah. And the way it traditionally has worked, it's broken down now, but the way it traditionally has worked, had worked, is the party chairman of the Democratic and Republican Party determined who was going to be a judge and they would say, for example, if there are seven, the Republicans get two of them and at all seven cross file and the five Democrats get nominated through the primary on the Republican side and the two Republicans get nominated on the Democratic side in the primary and those seven go on readily to be judges because they're virtually the only ones on the ballot. That has broken down tremendously yeah. uh, it, recently, and it started breaking down when Democrats started saying, why, why should we be voting for Republicans for judge? And started breaking the deal by simply not, not giving the Republicans the vote and other Democrats would win. These well, days, the Republicans don't even bother running many people, if any, for judge. Well, um, I guess the only way, uh, because Philadelphia is so heavily Democratic, the only way uh, you, a Republican, were, could really 
uh, I guess, have at least a, a fighter's chance is if you became number one on the ballot. How do you get to be number one, number two, or number three on the ballot that people vote on? Well, let me start by saying a Republican just running on the Republican side doesn't have a fighter's chance, even if they are number one. But to answer your question, the ballot order is determined in the primary by a random selection, pulling a number out of a hat. I thought it was a coffee can. Pulling a number out of a coffee can. Yeah, maybe it's a hat in Harrisburg. I don't remember. <laughs> but actually, it, 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 for judge, the drawing is in Harrisburg because okay. we're state officers. But you're right, in Philadelphia, it's under a, it's, what kind of coffee, Peter? I don't know, hopefully an empty coffee can, but- I'll, Yes, but I'll what be... kind of coffee used to be in it? That would be a, a good question for some of your later speakers. How about Maxwell House? I don't know. Well, oh, I thought you were, I thought this was a pop quiz. Yeah, I don't know the answer to that. So, so I got appointed along with uh, Eddie Summers, um, but the other three didn't. Oh, there was actually six of us. It's known as the KC5, but there were actually six of us. The sixth was Norman Ackerman, who was a, a Republican who was appointed. But Billy Meehan, the head of the De Republican Party, told him he could not run, that it was not his time, and he withdrew. So when candidates are told by their, uh, the party chairman, either Republican or Democrat, that it's not their time, basically, what does that mean? It means the chairman is lying, <laughs> is what it means. Um, there are people who have been told 12 times you're top on the list if you withdraw and uh, have never made any list uh, for party endorsement. Why, why would they uh, not make the list? Like, uh, what would prevent them from not being uh, chosen even though you were, quote, first on the list? Okay, because first on the list is uh, a term of art, which means maybe we'll consider you next time. Um, in the old days, in 1987, there were five or six people who determined every judicial candidate that the party supported. Was um, Brady around then, or did he? Yeah, no, no, he was not party chairman. Would that be Glancy? No, it was after Glancy. It was uh, Joe Smith, George Schwartz, the head of city council, Congressman Eilberg, sort of, Congressman Barrett. Uh, I'm going back. Pete Camille was party chairman at one time. Yeah. And I, oh, Feynman, Herb Feynman, the Speaker of the We're House. talking about a lot of people that got, got indicted. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, and maybe Buddy seen Frank. Vince Fumo, definitely. But the, uh, if, so they would get together and if, if you weren't mentioned by one of them, you didn't exist. You absolutely didn't exist. So for example, if I had run in 1980, 1985, and I had been everybody's second choice, which 
they may have said to me they were, I was, then I didn't exist because right. somebody who got a say had to throw your name onto that table. Then there was a negotiation of, of who. Now, Vince Fumo was wonderful at this because he always insisted that he got to name a judge. And then South Philadelphia always got to name a judge. So by that method, South Philadelphia got two. When Rendell was DA, he got to name a judge or two. And then the others could fight out who was next. So to say you're next was totally uh, a meaningless thing. It was because if, if you're on the table when a decision was made, maybe that counted. But if you didn't have the political clout to be named by somebody at the table, then you didn't exist. Who cares whether you had run six times? Steve Levin, who was a state rep for many years and later became a judge, had to run against the party. And he was Herb Feynman's successor in the legislature. And he was well-connected. Um, so he was waiting at his office for the call the night of the endorsement and it never came. So he goes out and he runs into Senator Smith, who was party chairman at that time, and says, what happened? And Senator Smith shakes his head, says, I don't know, I don't know. Well, what happened was his name had never been mentioned, I'm sure. And he ran outside of the party and won, as people more and more do. That was 1985. So let me ask you a quick question. Um, if you didn't get anybody who's running, they, there are certain prohibitions about uh, raising money. Uh, it, uh, if you're a judge or a candidate for judge, you can't advertise. Uh, you can't use, as far as I know, you can't use television or mass media to, to advertise your campaign. So you are, uh, a candidate would really be relying on their party if they're, they're picked to push them. Is that, is that a correct idea? It's a correct idea, except as time has gone on, it was this way in 1987 and it's become the Wild West now, you could hire individual consultants and pay individual wards to support you uh, even without the party endorsement. So that's street money. Yeah. So when I got, uh, and judicial candidates for the party are cash cows because they have the ability to raise money from lawyers and generally they're complete naivetes uh, first timers into politics. So they don't know what they're doing. So they're told that they have to make a contribution to the party as part of their campaign. Right. Although it was very interesting in my case, and I'm sure it happened with all of us endorsed candidates that year, because there was such a heightened sense of corruption. Uh, I was called into Brady's office and he literally read a statement to me 
which was clearly written by his lawyers, which said how much they wanted, what they would like, but I have the endorsement and regardless of whether I paid or not, I would be the endorsed candidate. And it was legalese and clearly he uh, had been told this is what you did. Before that, I'm quite sure you were told this is how much you're expected to contribute period the end. Let me just uh, clarify one quick thing. When I said street money, I do not mean John Street. That's the street money is a term of art. Yes, it's the money that's given to political figures or wards to support the work on election day. So running around the city, um, and I was pretty well connected from the liberal wing I met an awful lot of ward leaders. Most of them, or many of them probably, had gotten their starts in community civic associations, maybe the local neighborhood association, and rapidly came to the conclusion, I can't get anything done, or at least not enough done, unless I get involved in politics. And they all would talk about needing money for election day work. But one stood out in my mind because we, we, I was brought in by an intermediary, a good friend, and we had a very nice conversation. I guess she said she'd support me. I'm not sure. But she said, we were in her living room, and she said, and I get all this money for the ward, and I don't take any of it except for my porch. Can I show you my porch? And we went out and she showed me her back porch that she was acknowledging had been the fruit of street money. I am very likely the only one in Philadelphia, the only judicial candidate in Philadelphia to ever get a ward leader to refund street money. Now, I, well, I didn't, but I got street money back. Uh, like I said, judges are naifs, don't know their way around politics at all. Therefore, they're just sheep ready to be uh, fleeced. And this one ward leader took my money. I, it was really relatively small. I think it was $300 per ward at that time and did not support me. I was not on that ward's ballots. Well, if you're a losing judge candidate, why would a real politician care about you? Actually, even if you won, they won't care about you much because if you weren't in their hip pocket before, you, you're out of politics, you're irrelevant to them. And particularly somebody like me who everybody knew couldn't be fixed. But this ward leader, so I didn't get supported, but I won, but who cares? But the person he did care about was Congressman Borsky's political guy who went to him and said, you didn't support Bernstein, pay back the money. And he did because Congressman Borsky and this political guy were going to be around forever. And he didn't want to stay on their bad side by taking my money and not uh, paying it back. So I think I'm the only candidate ever to get money back from a ward leader who didn't support him. So you're, you're, you're ready for the Pennsylvania Hall of Fame. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah, Hall of Fame, Hall of something. Well, right. let, me, let me just ask you uh, a question because you, you mentioned that Casey formed a, a selection committee so that people like yourself and, and Judge Jones and the others would be merit selected. Was there a time uh, in which the, the Philadelphia Bar Association would receive the names of all the candidates and they would make a decision amongst their own judicial group, I should say, but of attorneys that they would support somebody because they had merit and they weren't going to support or endorse somebody because they shouldn't have, in their belief, be a judge. Was, was that a case and did it, did it work? And if it did, why does it not work now? It works better now. Oh, you think it does? Go ahead. Yeah, uh, and I'll tell you why. First of all, the Bar Association does a wonderful job of investigating judicial candidates. They really do. They'll put in hundreds of lawyer hours talking to candidates, evaluating questionnaires, talking to people who know the candidates and really do a, a top-notch investigative job. For a while, they had a deal with the party, the Democratic Party, which is the only one that really matters, that the party would not endorse anyone who was found not qualified. But that broke down. And in my opinion, it broke down because somebody's nephew had enough political clout that they simply had to be endorsed. And it didn't matter whether they were uh, found not qualified or not. The excuse the party used insofar as they really cared about an excuse was you make your, your ratings too late ridiculous. But anyway, I always said for even after I was a judge for 20 years, that the Bar Association believes in alphabetical selection of judge. And that's because they only had two categories, recommended or not recommended. Now, if somebody's not recommended, you can bet there are really good reasons why they shouldn't be a judge, whatever they are. Um, the Bar Association systemically does, does not want to get involved in judicial fights because the people who become judges, these bar leaders and bar members are gonna have to appear in front of. Right. And so the worse you are as a person, and the more venal you are and the less you have morality, the more you're going to take it out on somebody who, who didn't find you qualified. So it's a really low bar to be found qualified as opposed to unqualified. There really has to be a reason. But I would say to chancellors of the bar that the Bar Association believes in alphabetical election of judges because they would do this immense evaluation, let's say there's 15 running, and find three unqualified and 12 qualified for six judicial positions, and then list them in a newspaper ad alphabetically. So when someone follows the Bar Association recommendation, when they get past the sixth in the alphabet, they can't vote for anymore. So how, they're campaigning alphabetically, it has to be. 
in the last couple of years, three, four, maybe four, the bar in Philadelphia has created a highly recommended category, which has much stricter criteria. The state bar for statewide judicial offices has had that for years. And that says these, person, these people really should be judges. This last election, there were four candidates running, some of whom did not have great ballot position, who were found highly qualified or highly recommended. And one decided that the ballot position was such that they really didn't run. But the three who actually mounted a campaign all won. This highly recommended category is very significant and becomes more and more significant as, as the political party deteriorates. When I ran for judge in 1987, I'd say there were 17 out of the 66 wards, maybe 20, that because I was an endorsed candidate meant they would support me. All the others, you had to individually uh, get support from the ward leader usually just the ward leader or the ward committee. The one who stood out was Ann Verna. From South Philly. South Philly, 36th Ward, who was, um, I think, city council president at the yes, time. Yes, I, I believe she was. I'm not sure if she was uh, before or after Joe Coleman, but she definitely- After. Okay. A after. And I uh, got the endorsement of the party. And was I an appointed? I must have been, a, I might have been an appointed judge then. I don't know. And I went to see her about my election. And we talked a little bit. And she said, I'll support you. Okay. Well, being somewhat experienced in politics, I know, knew I couldn't rely on that, although Ann Verna had a very good reputation. So a couple of weeks later, I go back to see her again. And she, we talked a little bit and then she says, why are you here? I told you I would support you. And that was her reputation. Um, but, but very, very few of them uh, had that kind of reputation. Now, Marge Tartaglione, who you've probably talked about in your podcast. Oh, of course. Was... Chair, chair of the city commissioners. I, before I ran for judge, was Marion Tesco's legal deputy. So I was well familiar with Marge Tortaglione and she was well familiar with me. And needless to say, was not a big fan of mine, but she invited me to her ward meeting, which was in the basement of her home, which was set up as a bar. And that was in, what was she, the 33rd Ward? The no, not 33rd, I don't know, someplace. In Port Richmond though, right? No, no, a little bit. No, no, it was lower Northeast, but I don't think, I know it wasn't 33rd and I don't know, maybe it'll come to me. Right. But anyway, I go to her ward and she has all the candidates sing. All the judicial candidates, you know, you're sitting around and she's talking like she always did. 
and just rambling on and doing a monologue and introducing candidates and blah, blah, blah. Well, she introduces me and I do my little speech and she said, and she's also trying to get you to drink, although I think, but I wasn't. And um, she lets me speak. And then she says, he sounds like everybody else, but I just want everybody to know that he is ADA through and through. What's ADA? Americans for Democratic Action, which was the liberal wing of the, of the Philadelphia party. And by saying that, she was saying, she was lifting the veil <laughs> off of me. This is, this is one of those liberals that so we're- sing for your supper. That we're fighting all the time. Okay, so then it gets down to the candidates have to sing. I mean, I thought she was just gonna let me go through, you know, I was gonna get endorsed by her ward and it'd be okay. And, but, but she wanted to make it clear that who I was and that everybody knew. And so she, she gets some of them to sing and I'm like cringing in the corner and being the astute politician she was, I'm sure she saw it. And she points to me and says, Bernstein, it's your turn, Hava Nagila. Which I do. Okay. We don't have a recording of that. <laughs> so later on, I'm talking to one of the other judge candidates who's, who's really much more connected to Marge. And I say, what happened, blah, blah, blah. And he says, well, first of all, if you were in, invited to the ward, that means she's going to support you. So don't worry about that. But secondly, if she can make you sing, think of what else she can make you do later on. <laughs> and it was like, oh yeah, there's a there's a level of professionalism in this world that I I only get to glimpse. But yeah. but that's right. If she can get these stolid, stuck-up judicial judicial candidates, maybe she does it for retention judges who are judges. I don't know, but well, anyway, let's just put it this way: they don't make March Tartaglione's anymore. Uh, she well, was. She was one of a group. We had Ann Land, we had Joan Krajewski, and she was right in there with that group. Yeah, you, you talked about Steve Lopez earlier. He called Ann Land and Joan Krajewski the Boom Boom Girls. Yeah, we had, I don't know if you heard the episode uh, podcast, we had Mike Freeman on, who's a very good friend of mine. And Mike was the uh, editor of the Philadelphia Daily News, uh, and he was the uh, editor who sent the attorney, I mean, the reporter out to Las Vegas to follow Land and Krajewski around because he, you know, he'd heard about all these conferences and he said, I don't know what goes on there. So he sent the reporter out and the rest is boom, boom history. Well, let me tell you, talking about Las Vegas, um, I ran for judge. First of all, think about it. <laughs> 13 judges get thrown off for taking money in an envelope, not connected to any case from the attack arm of the labor unions. And I can, I 
I understood it as a tip because that's why they couldn't connect it to any of the any case because if these people wanted to get a case thrown out, all they had to do was show up and, and be in the front row, thereby evidencing oh, yeah. their interests. And it also sort of explains why one guy got 200. He obviously had done something that they didn't like instead of the 300. But one year, so think about who, they, who these people must be. One year, the Bar Association in their infinite wisdom decided it would be a good idea to do the Bench Bar Conference in Atlantic City. Now the Bench Bar Conference is a conference of judges and lawyers. Right. And if you do it at a casino in Atlantic City, then there will be tables where judges, and the point is for judges and lawyers to get along together and socialize and get to know each other in a different context. Well, if you're doing that at a gambling table, then it really shouldn't surprise anyone given, given who we're talking about, that the chips in front of the judges kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger, whether they won or lost. So the chips were down. Yeah. Yeah, that was the last time for 20 years that they thought Atlantic City would be a good idea for the bench bar conference. When I became a judge in the roofer scandal, um, one of the thoughts generally was judges never pay for anything. And the rumor was there were judges who got their suits and got their cars cleaned and whatever, never paid for anything. And all these things that judges got as a routine came out that they were being stopped. The only thing I regretted was that the Phillies announced they were no longer sending judges free season passes. Well, if I'd have known that, I would have run for judge. There you go. I didn't even know that was one of the perks until I realized it was taken away from me. Well, uh, uh, as a DA, Mayor, Mayor Nutter would send over, there's a mayor's box, and he would send over tickets to the DA, and they would decide who was going to go. So I was, I was lucky enough to go, and I'm with some of my colleagues, and Mayor Nutter walked in. Now, I understood that when the mayor's box is being used, you get a spread. You get everything, food, drinks, everything. And we're there, the DAs are there, and there's nothing there. There is absolutely nothing. And then Mayor Nutter came in clutching a 99-cent bag of hers, and he didn't even offer to share. So that's what's happened to this world. Well, yeah, also, what were you going to do to help him anyway? But my son, my son bought, this is a, a Mayor Nutter story, he bought a, uh, a cart, a food cart, thinking, thinking he'd set it up and have somebody work it for him. And then he discovered there were all these problems with it. There was uh, licensing, you needed to submit architectural drawings. And every time he thought he had done enough, they would tell him, no, you need another fligage or, or this. And finally, uh, it came down to he needed a 
commissary. He needed a commissary. And that's the place where you store the food overnight. And it, it, seemingly this was the last hurdle. He needed to get a commissary. Well, there are 500 food carts and there are four commissaries in the city of Philadelphia, which can accommodate 80 food carts. So he went around trying to find a commissary and nobody would talk to him. Finally, one of the food cart guys signals to him and whispers to him to meet him out back. And he goes out back and the guy says, I've been in business for 10 years. When the inspector comes around looking for my license, I give him 50 bucks and I get a license. I don't have a commissary. But when Mayor Nutter came in, remember, this is a story about Mayor Nutter. Yes. They wouldn't take the 50 bucks. How dare they? Because they'd get in trouble. So I just continue without a license. Hey, you know, people have to do certain things in, in desperate situations. It's Philadelphia, yeah. Yeah, well, uh, we do things differently here. Um, I Speaking guess my... of doing things differently, yes. another story, if I can change the subject again. I'm at a conference with a judge from maybe Elk County, someplace up, up in the North Central. He's the first Democrat elected in 150 years. He was a Democrat and he represented hunters. So he got enough Republican votes and won as judge. And he's telling the story up in Elk County, where when you're caught as a hunter doing something wrong, having over your allotment a deer or something, they issue you a ticket. And that ticket, if you give the agent $50 right then and there is fine. But if you make them give you the ticket and go up to... Uh, to court, it's $150. So this is a little hard to believe, but I said, we have some cops in Philly like that too. Well, hey, that that's, you know, that's training camp for parking authority people. <laughs> yes, right. If you can't pass that, you don't get to be a parking authority person. Uh, I just, uh, before I let you go, let me ask you one question. We've sort of wandered around it. What is retention mean? We said that, that Bernie Snyder did not get retained, but uh, it, it, there, it's, it's something that happens that is different than other people who run for re-election. Pennsylvania has really a great system. When you are elected, if you're appointed, you then have to get elected. But when you are elected judge, you're elected for a 10-year term and your pension vests after that 10-year term. So if you want to be totally independent of politics, you're able to do that. You don't have to worry about re-election. And then uh, at the 10-year anniversary, it's not an election where you're running against somebody. It's either a yes or no. And if more people vote yes than no, you have another 10-year term. If more people vote no, you're out of business. And the only person, that, at least in Philadelphia, that got voted no was uh, Bernie Judge Snyder, who we, just, who we just spoke about. So it, it is difficult to lose. In Philadelphia, but around the state, where there's maybe a county with one or two judges, 
They know who their judges are. When they set bail, it's front page news. And every year, two or three judges around the state do lose retention. But in Philadelphia, I, can only, I only know of one. So before we go, I'm not going to tell a story, but uh, Palmer, Judge Palmer, Tiffany Palmer, changed everything about how you can run for judge and win. The, the system, system has changed. When I ran for judge and for many years thereafter, it had to be, you had to get a vote in your areas, but you couldn't be shut out any other part of the city. You had to be, when I ran, there were five elected. I had to be, I didn't have to be one or two, but I had to be one of the top five in South Philly. I, I needed to be one or two in the Northwest, but I, had, I couldn't get shut out in the Northeast or South Philly. So you had to run a citywide campaign. Tiffany Palmer took her uh, highly recommended category and all the changes in Philadelphia and the gay and lesbian community and all the independent ward leaders that have occurred and the Bernie Sanders people and basically won with independence, non-machine, racking up the vote in Center City, expanded Center City, uh, Queens Village and 30th Ward, 15th Ward out into West Philly and the Northwest completely changed the equation of what was necessary to win. And she didn't even have good ballot position. So you think that's going to be a template for the future, for future elections for judge? It could be. Okay. It remains to be seen whether it, it is. But like I said, I thought there were 17 or 20 wards that supported me just because I got the endorsement. If it's more than 10 now, I'd be surprised. So that means even if you get the endorsement, you have 50 wards that you got to somehow get the support of, independent of that Democratic Party endorsement. Well, let me just, well, I guess I've said it three times, but what do you think of the whole idea of judges running for election as opposed to a governor forming the commission like Casey and taking those uh, recommendations and then appointing those people as judges as opposed to uh, an election process? Well, I have two thoughts on that. First of all, in Philadelphia, running around the whole city, if you're of that sort, you learn an awful lot about Philadelphia. You're going from ward to ward, trying to suck up to the committeemen, trying to get them to like you. And if you go to the Hispanic wards, at least in 1987, You'll find cobblestone streets, potholes that your car will drop off of, and no street signs. And then when you give your little speech and everybody's nodding, as you leave, you realize all these people, none of these people speak English. They all speak Spanish. Now, when you're on the bench and there's a witness who only speaks Spanish, you have a different perspective than you might otherwise if you were just anointed to take the bench. The other thing is the problem is uh, with an appointive system is who's doing the appointments. Right. If we had an appointive system in Harrisburg in the 80s or 90s, 
probably three-fourths of the people who were doing the appointment have now been to jail. Well, that's why it's money talks and bullshit walks. Exactly. So uh, the problem with an appointive judiciary is the problem with politics in Philadelphia. And what many people don't realize is if you've got a 12, uh, an 11-person committee who makes the recommendations, five of them can be as uh, pure as driven snow, but if the other six are in control, it doesn't matter. You got it. And if you, if you say, okay, this pure, wonderful commission give me 10 names from which I'm going to appoint five judges, just like with me, there'll be a back door, which says, yeah, five of these are wonderful people, but they're not our people, so don't appoint them. Uh, so uh, it, it, it's, 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 a, it's a devil if you do and a devil if you don't. Well, it, I could not have been a judge. I don't think I would ever have been appointed judge in Philadelphia under an appointive system. But having worked in politics for 20 years, having fought the machine, having involved myself in congressional and state representative races, um, then I had a real shot with or without the endorsement. And since the party deteriorates more and more, that has occurred. It costs, takes a lot of money, but it can be done now much, much easier than it was in 1987. So let me dispel a myth, uh, probably created by the United States Supreme Court, and that is, as a United States Supreme Court, or a federal judge at all, for that matter, you're there for life. Uh, Pennsylvania has a mandatory retirement of judges uh, at what age, 70 or 75? It was recently changed to 75. So uh, there, there is an end to your tenure uh, as opposed to, the, to what the federal bench does. I just need the podsters to understand that your state and city uh, is a whole different world than federal government and federal uh, uh, tenures than, than the state and the city. Where yes, the yes. And in that regard, um, it was 70 years old up until maybe three years ago. And everyone, with few exceptions, lasted until age 70. It was changed to 75. And there have been a lot of people who, like me, were on the bench for 25, 30 years who said, well, I don't think I, 30 years is enough. So yeah. since I retired in in uh, 16, there have been about five or six other judges who have retired who really didn't have to and could have lasted out until 75, but chose not to. Yeah, and um, and this this, uh, law uh, applies all the way through because I remember when Chief Justice Castile, he probably would have remained there for as long as he wanted, but he too uh, had to retire. He hit 70 just before, maybe a year before they changed it to 75. Yes, that's correct. So, um, I, I want to thank you for coming. Um, we will leave the invitation open so that we could have you come back if you're willing. 
and you want to put up with my insanity, that would that would be great. Uh, and I wish you a happy holiday and a well holiday. And uh, I'll be talking to you. Thank you very much for having me, Peter. Thank Take you. Take care. Bye. Bye. Okay, I hope that worked for your purposes. Yeah, I thought that was great. Absolutely great.